Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on international business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Welcome to the Culture Matters podcast, where this week we have our guest being John Amici. Now, most of you, or at least some of you, will know John for what he's done in the past and what he's currently doing. But for those of you who do not know John, John is a, John Amici is a psychologist, New York Times bestselling author, and a former NBA basketball player. He's six foot nine. My goodness, he's enormous, and he's not only enormous in size, but also in his uh, in his opinion and his knowledge when it comes to sports, business, and the cultural environment in which that all lives and thrives. Listen to the interview and make sure you make it all the way to the end because he will give you some valuable tips in order to become more culturally competent. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, or what is it? Good afternoon, John. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Is it good morning or good afternoon? I have no idea where you are, actually. It is good morning. I'm in England. It's just good morning, barely. You've got 15 minutes. <laughs> i got to hurry then. Okay, uh, we've got John Amici. That's uh, that's how you pronounce your last name, right? Yes. Can you explain to us a little bit where this comes from? This is not a, a, a genuine English name, or is it? Uh, no, it isn't. Most most people think it's Italian when exactly, yeah. they hear it, but it is not Italian. It is Nigerian, Ibu Nigerian, in fact. It's, uh, a, okay. it's actually an incredibly common name. Is it really? <laughs> yes. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's it sounds indeed very Italian. That's interesting how this goes. Can you, uh, John, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where you come from, where you're now, well, we know you're in England or in London, maybe, and uh, what would be your cultural frame of reference? Um, a little bit about me. I am um, a psychologist. I am. Um, I have a, a mother who is uh, white English and from Hyde, yeah. uh, which is a small <clears throat> town up north that yeah. nobody knows about. <laughs> and my father is Nigerian, um, uh, Ibu. Sadly, both of them are, have passed away at this point, but okay. uh, they they uh, they ended up with three kids. So I am the eldest of three. Okay, and are you the tallest as well? Oh, yeah, that would be unfortunate <laughs> if my two sisters were taller than me. That would be unfortunate for them, or maybe unique as well. Who knows? Um, is Ibu, is that from the north or the south of uh, Nigeria? The south of Nigeria, but at this point, <clears throat> um, increasingly isolated. My mother actually fought in the, the last war that tore Nigeria to pieces, mm-hmm. which is the Biafran War. Yeah. And... Um, and, and from what I see, I mean, that was a war that led to the near extinction of, of Ibu people. Okay. Ibu is a tribe or is it a language or is it both? It both. Okay. All right. It's a culture. A it cultural is. difference as, as well as a language, as well as, a, a, I suppose, a tribal connotation. But yeah. I think that the, the truth is at this point, we're in a, a situation when you look at Africa where there's this immense split that's coming based on religion as much as anything else at yeah. this point but is, is looking equally likely to cause havoc 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Predictable in a way. Sad, uh, definitely. Um, people might be wondering. The listeners might be wondering. Okay, you've got you've got this uh, uh, British Nigerian English speaking man uh, on the other side. He is a New York Times bestselling author. You're also a former NBA basketball player, and you're or, you're an organizational psychologist. What do you have to do with culture, really? Can you explain? Um. Well, I, I think everybody has to do with culture. That is the nature of culture. We're all a part of it, even if we're not vanguards in, of somewhere or another. I happen to think that I am um, particularly outspoken on issues of culture, usually where I, where I see it mal- being maladaptive or where I see it being persecutory. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I think that puts me somewhat on the on the forefront. I mean, I'm I work with Amnesty International and I end up going to different countries, including China, uh, mm-hmm. the first amnesty ambassador to be allowed into China, actually, mm-hmm. um, to, to talk about the ways that cultures are prosecutorial, uh, right. to talk about the ways that cultures can denigrate certain people and harm rather than what they can be at their best, which is uh, an environment that is the, it's the agar that everyone needs mm-hmm. to become successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say you're quite outspoken on cultural differences, or when it comes to culture, rather. Uh, what is what would be the most outspoken standpoint or viewpoint you would have? Oh, uh, that would be hard to um, that would be hard to give you one, probably. Okay, well, you can give us more if you want. I, I think. Uh, I mean, most of the na- most of the major cultural conflicts that are going on, whether you're talking about uh, Russia's persecution of LGBT people and their, their frankly. Um, That's a prosecution of the the, the gay and lesbian uh, population there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly right. Um, but then there's also issues of Nigeria, where I've had discussions with the the Nigerian consulate here in in Britain on numerous occasions about what's happening there in terms of corruption, in terms of ecology, or the lack or the thought, the lack of thought therein. Uh, and also this this increasing wealth gap. But that's also, I mean, uh, it's funny, uh, we've been talking now about other places, and the truth is that in the UK, and certainly in the US, where I I spend 10 days a month in the US, and I spend the rest of my time in Europe, mm-hmm. it, it is increasingly obvious that the cultural differences, um, the cultural divide mm-hmm. is being, I think, manipulated um, to, to make people less and less trusting of each other, more and more fearful. Are you are you are you saying then that it's being used as a as a means of influence uh, for the better of a smaller group of people? Like you are different than I am from me, so hence you are either better or I am worse. These kind of things. Yes, absolutely. I, I think in a world where we know a tiny percentage of the people hold most of the power, one of the ways that that is achieved yeah. is by making sure that the 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 rest of the the population that is not benefiting. Mm-hmm instead of seeing that tiny minority of people holding all the cards as the power brokers and as the problem, they manipulate the environment to make it so that they see other different equally deprived minorities as the problem. Hmm. That's why in Britain right now, immigration is the big conversation. In America right now, immigration is com- across the EU. I think definitely, yeah. Is yeah. the problem, yeah. and and or at least it's, that's the story we're being told. Yeah, like, like I was going to say, is it a problem? Is it a real problem, or is it a story that's being that us that's being told to us? So hence we think it's a problem. It's a, it's a lie. It's a pervasive evil lie, right? Because I, I know that it's possible to find the um, mother of eighteen 
who has been in the country um, all her, you know, she arrived as a child perhaps and has been in the country all her life and now, and now is in a position where um, she's taking advantage of welfare and benefits mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. It's possible to find these stories. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the truth is that they are such a tiny minority yep. that the vast majority of immigrants who come to any country in Europe and certainly America, good Lord, a country built on immigration, yeah. Uh, and the persecution of a culture beforehand, we should add, then all of a sudden you realize, you know, these are just more lies, more lies. Okay. Is, is, is that the reason uh, why people tend to brush over culture so easily? That I mean, culture or, or talking about cultural differences is my profession. And what I see so often happening is is that um, when you're talking to people, you're talking to the, the, the converted already, so to speak. So people are interested and understand that there are cultural differences that can get in the way of, of understanding each other. And it's just differences. They're not good or bad. But I also find a lot of people, maybe the majority of the of the business as well, tend to brush over culture like it's not important. Like you have two eyes, I have two eyes, two ears, a nose and a mouth. So we're all equal. Uh, This is the the colorblind philosophy. Mm -hmm. It is incredibly convenient. I can absolutely see why people who have privilege and who have power would enjoy the colorblind philosophy. Because what it does is it removes the idea that the differentials in achievement of various different groups Mm -hmm. is, is because of anything other than their own ineptitude, laziness, or otherwise lack of ability. How, how do you overcome this then, John? How could you well, overcome this? You, you can't overcome it. Um, I mean, you can't. This is not one of those things where you can just say that's not true. You, you could, the only way you can overcome it is by helping people, by making transparent the systemic and and uh, kind of covert ways that certain types of people find themselves uh, disadvantaged until you can make transparent that web visible to others. I mean, so people can actually see that there are differences and there are differences that are overcomable. Until you can make, until you can create transparency and by which you make the, this web visible uh, more accurately. Yeah. Um, You can't do anything about it because even well-meaning people want to believe. And certainly there's, there are entire countries that are built on the idea that merit wins. Mm-hmm. America, for one, is a country where if you work hard enough, it doesn't matter where you come from, whether it be the dust bowls of the Midwest or whether it's the the the, the coast or, or wherever. Mm-hmm. If you work hard enough, you can become a, a billionaire. Yeah, is the pervasive lie that you're told. Okay, what's but we, tr- know what, we know what's it's not the truth. And what is the truth then? The truth is that there is a there is a computer program um, uh, developed in the UK in mm-hmm. by a university in London that can tell you the um, the average, sorry, that can tell you the uh, the wage that a person will earn at the age of 30 by entering in their postcode of birth. Right. So your environment determines your future there. It just, whilst <laughs> I mean, economical always, for sure. Well, yeah. well, there are also, well, there are always outliers. And of course, there are people who are a great exception. I, I think in some sen- senses, I am one of them. I was going to say, yes. Yeah. But but the, the problem is that we, the, the system, the, this systemic uh, discrimination uses the outliers to refute the truth mm-hmm. of the imbalance. So they would say of President Obama, look, a black person made it to the highest office in the world, perhaps, the most powerful man in the world. Therefore, it's really spurious logic, 
but therefore there is no prejudice. Right. If that if this can happen, then you know there's no complaining. Don't complain the fact that you're colored or black or of Afro-American heritage. You can make it. If he can do it, you can do it as well. Exactly. Yeah. And then and then the then then it can be added on. Then you can simply say, look, this man went to 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 Harvard. He was the the editor of the Law Review. Maybe if you put down your forty, you, maybe if you maybe if you stop smoking weed, maybe if you had less mm-hmm. children, all of a sudden you can use the pervasive stereotypes about people. To make it so that it's actually not the system's fault in any way, but it's just their own. And of course, I should add here, of course, there are people for whom they never begin to try. Sure. They they, they never begin to fight. They never have any aspiration. But I would also point out to people that we're intelligent beings. We're quite sophisticated. And all you need to do in some senses is grow up in an environment where you see that the, the see hopes and aspirations being crushed on a daily basis before you suddenly say, eh, maybe it's maybe it's not worth it to try. That learned hopelessness can happen incredibly quickly. Yeah, I agree, definitely. When it comes to culture, cultural background, what do you think? How do you feel yourself? You're half Nigerian, half um, British. What what is your culture? I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> And you spend a lot of time in the U.S. as well. You, is this is this like a neutral statement you're making, or you don't really know where you fit in? No, no. I mean, I've made a living out of not quite fitting in everywhere I go. Yeah. And I think that's a very useful place to be. Yes. I, I don't. I mean, I, I'm six nine. I'm black. I'm gay. I'm many other things. I don't fit anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it also means that I have a useful perspective on most things because of that because they are i get to consider the world almost in every environment as an observer of it yeah, rather with, than a participant with different glasses yes yeah okay you're you're six how much six nine six nine my goodness i've seen you in real life and <laughs> from a distance it's less it's it's not as scary than close up <laughs> <laughs> it's um because th- this whole sports thing and i've I've, uh, i've checked out your website and people the listeners should definitely do so and by the way all the the links that we stuff that we talk about and when it comes to links and show notes etc you can find it on culturematters.com and just uh, type in john in the search bar and he'll he'll pop up for sure in uh, one of the podcasts you're uh, an ex former nba basketball player when it comes to cultural differences do you see differences in business and sports uh yes well <clears throat> i suppose by the, the truth is that sport is a business mm-hmm. yes it, and, and most of the sports that we're talking about would be at the elite end and most of those sports are if they were listed you know, FTSE or Fortune 250 companies. Mm-hmm. The NBA, the NFL, Premier League football, football in most, the, the the top football league in most of the countries around Europe, all of these, if listed, would be massive multinational organizations mm-hmm. based in one place for sure, but reaching out constantly, as we see with um, Premiership football in England, sending teams over to America, as we see with the NBA and the NFL, sending teams to Britain and Europe. These are just global companies with a sporting bent and 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 the interesting part is is increasingly over time how little of what they do is actually the sporting part Mm -hmm. i know that as core the game being played is core but the truth is there is there's marketing there's video games there's all kinds of stuff that's around it so sport is very much like business in one way Mm -hmm. but i think my my knee-jerk reaction to say no immediately was based on this the idea that sport doesn't operate on the same kind of rules as most business. When it comes to culture, yeah. most businesses now, and, and again, I know that there are notable exceptions sure, to this. Sure, sure, we know that. But most businesses now, 
they want the very best candidate to come in. Mm-hmm. And they know that business rotates uh, almost on its in professional services, banking, these type of areas. Oh, every three years, somebody's looking for a new opportunity where they can raise their profile, raise their wage. Mm-hmm. And they need to, and these businesses all know if we've brought in the best people because we're looking at this broad swathe and we, we're not interested in just men who are white and straight, mm-hmm. um, but rather we just want the best candidate wherever, whatever cultural, uh, ethnic, whatever background they come from, yeah. then all of a sudden they are starting to pay attention to, to the needs of, of different groups, including straight, white, older men mm-hmm. who, who are still the predominant group within these, these entities. Mm-hmm to make sure that they just have the best. They know that it's a 21st century performance prerogative. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that they have recruitment on, uh, for, for certain pools of people, whether it be gender or ethnicity, whether it be uh, sexual orientation or, or whatever else, they do this not because they want to be kind, because we all know many of these companies are not kind. They do this because they want to win. Yes. Now, this is where the difference comes. That does not happen in sport. We do not say actively, we do not see them rather say in sport actively, I don't care where you come from, what background, I will support you in this entity because we know your talent is essential for our survival. And whether you're, you're, you're black, orange, pink, polka dot, whatever, doesn't make a difference. Yeah. yeah. We don't see that because the people who run sports are dinosaurs. They're the, they're the, they're the, the, the last under-evolved remnant. <laughs> <laughs> they stomp around the cultural uh, landscape, yeah. treading on shrews, thinking, <clears throat> thinking somehow that that the powers of evolution will 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 ignore them, yeah, and and let them live in some kind of stasis bubble. And although they are, you know, at this current point, still some of the strongest brands in the world, able to to drag into their sphere all the major business brands that we've heard of, you know, when you think of the Olympics, the power of them to, to bring kings and queens and prime ministers begging to them. Yeah. At some point in the future, there will be a line that is crossed. At some point, there will be a competition. I believe it'll probably be either a World Cup or an Olympics, a yeah. Summer Olympics. There'll be a competition where one group or another is targeted and somebody from that group is killed, right. is murdered. And in, in that country... And that country doesn't do anything about it because that's what that country does to people of that type. It might be LGBT people in in the World Cup, knowing where that's going to be in Qatar next, or it could be somebody else. Mm. But that will happen. And at that point, the world will recoil. Mm-hmm. And the relationship with sport that is so golden and seemingly impervious mm-hmm. to, to this to their to their lack of evolution will suddenly change. And, and then the shrews will will dominate and the dinosaurs will be extinct. It sounds like there's a bit of work when it comes to to making these sports people, quote-unquote, understand cultural differences a little bit better. They they know the... I mean, they could very easily bring in the policies. Yeah. And, and in fact, this is the... This is the... This is, to me, the hypocrisy of sports is that if you read their websites, if you read their... their they often... You know, football, the IOC, they have amazing principles written down. Yeah, true. Amazing principles. <laughs> principles, if, if they followed them, uh, they, they are so, I mean, they're not even rhetorically flowery. They are just to the point and beautiful. Mm-hmm. If they followed them, they would be exemplars for the rest of the world. Mm. 
they would be the kind of principles that governments would be able to take on board. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the hypocrisy of sport is that they write these beautiful principles. Things like sport is a human right. Things like discrimination of no kind can be allowed in any member of the IOC. Mm-hmm. And that when it comes to the practical matters, money talks. Yes, very much. Absolutely. Um, you said you spent like 10 days a month in the US. Mm-hmm. And yes. the rest you spend in uh, in the UK or the rest of Europe, maybe the rest of the world as well. What would you, if you would be able to point out the cultural differences between the US and the Brits, what would be the biggest differences there? Um, if there are, oh, um, I think the, I think there are a huge number. I, I the thing I tell I tell I have a community center here in in Manchester, and I tell those young people who always want to go to America, and they think that it's the same country because the language is similar. Yes. And I often highlight to them that that it is more different to go to America than it is to go and live in France as a as a non-French speaker. Yeah. And I don't mean Paris. I mean like Cholet, some tiny, tiny little town with, with 30,000 people. Yeah. Um, it's more different to go to New York than it is to go to somewhere in the middle of nowhere in France. Mm. It, it is there. There is difference in terms of people's acceptance of aspiration. It's, it's different in America in terms of people's uh, acceptance of their own self-promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, in England, we have people who self-promote, but even that has to be done skillfully in a way that is not simply, I'm the best that there not, is. Yeah, not shouting, standing on a table and shouting, you're the best. Exactly. Whereas in America, people like that, you know, Donald Trump, for example, <laughs> yeah. uh, he he is lauded for the fact that he embodies what, what in America is called American exceptionalism. Uh-huh the idea that they are better than everybody else because they're American. And and I think it's an incredibly dangerous thing because mm-hmm. if you think you're exceptional just because of who you are, you don't have you don't tend to think you have to put in a great deal of work to remain so. Mm-hmm. Which is why when you look at the statistics in terms of education, in terms of child poverty, in terms of any number of different indicators, America's way, way down against countries that they think are underdeveloped. I, I would agree with that. I think I should also point out that Britain is way down against countries that we think are overdeveloped. Sure, sure, sure. Simply sure. that that our our exceptionalism is based on history and class, and there are still enough of those people in power yeah. that it maintains that 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 wayward uh, direction. Other than the the, the language, the, the commonality in language, are there similarities between the uh, the Americans and the and the Brits? The, the about fifty percent of the audience that listens to this podcast comes from the United States, and the rest comes from the rest of the world. With the UK taking up a good uh, second spot there, mm-hmm. so, so would you be able to indicate similarities between the US and the UK? I think that there is a, I mean, given the history between Britain and America, I think there is a strange and, and wonderful and pleasantly positive bond between the two countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, given given how terrible Brits were in terms of our engagement with America, uh-huh. it's a surprising thing that we have, you know, what is called the special relationship still. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pleased that we do. Right. Um, I think in terms of commonalities, I think that there is a, a, a sense of charity in America. Uh, I think there's a sense in, of Britain as well. And, and in that case, in that way, it's similar. But in America, there is a sense of duty of charity mm-hmm. that um, I really appreciate. And uh, I, I recognize, you know, most of my teammates when I played, they had charitable fam- charitable foundations. And, mm-hmm. and whilst for some of them, it most certainly was a way that they could offset tax. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
for, for, for many of them, it was really about a sense of duty that I have got much and now I must deliver back to those who don't have much. Sounds almost like socialism there. Yeah, this is a bad word to use there. I think. And that's exactly right. I mean, yeah. that's the strange, things, uh, strange thing about it. Mm. It, it, it. America is anti-socialist, and there's another difference. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not particularly a socialist, but I, I do believe in a, in, a, in, a, in a welfare net. I do believe in, in, in a society that takes more from those who have the most and gives right. and, and takes less from those who have the least. Yeah. And definitely, having lived in America, I definitely am a person who understands that what they consider socialized medicine, what we in England call the NHS, yeah. is a revelation that they should have had single a single-payer system that they should have had decades ago. Yeah, true. Very um, much. Yeah. Um, total different direction. Uh, you mentioned it already a bit in your in your own introduction. You're a global ambassador for Amnesty International. Uh, what do you do there, and, and how does culture sort of play a role there? Um, Amnesty is a really interesting organization in that people know the name and, I, and they know the placards often and they think that Amnesty is just about standing up and, and, um, and protesting. They think it's the green piece of land. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of, they go to hotspots of human rights violations and stand there. But really, they're an education um, uh, uh, organization as much as they are that. They're an organization that lobbies mm -hmm. as much as, as that. And they lobby from the perspective of, uh, which is very different than most, in that they aren't lobbying from the perspective of, of, of special interest. They're lobbying from the perspective of the interests of the underrepresented, okay. which, which, I think is, which I think is both a remarkable responsibility and, uh, and a wonderful role to be able to play. I play a tiny part in this, in that there are certain issues that I have some interest in uh, and some expertise in, and when those things mesh mm -hmm. with ongoing uh, work, I try and lend what little extra expertise I can I can add mm -hmm. to, to what Amnesty already has. Right. You know, whether you're talking about LGBT issues from a kind of a personal and self-interested point of view, yes. uh, racial divides, things that really interest me or really concern me now, the, the, this, this increasing gap between those with nothing and, and those with everything mm -hmm. and not just the gap but also the, the the disproportionate numbers and again this is not about just redistribution i'm not interested in that mm -hmm. um and then also things like the global arms treaty right uh the, which was a, a, a more recent thing because you know i just i just don't understand <laughs> why why bananas are more highly regulated than machine guns true Okay, well, that, that's maybe a slightly outside of, uh, of the scope of this. Uh, it's not a political podcast. It's a business podcast that deals with uh, with culture. Um, I think in 2008, you went to China. And um, can you elaborate a little bit more what you did there? Because you were the only one, the only person that just, it's better that you explain what you did there in China in 2008. I went to China. Uh, I was going to go for the games. So yeah. I would have had a, a, a BBC accreditation. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, because I was an Amnesty ambassador, um, China was not very happy with me going, but they didn't necessarily want to create an international stink about journalism. They already have enough flack about freedom of journalism, and one of the deals that they made with the IOC was that they'd have freedom of expression for journalism, mm -hmm. journalists. <clears throat> Nonetheless, uh, before the Games happened, probably about six months before the Games, I was called to London, um, by the Chinese ambassador mm -hmm. 
and he asked me to come to the the embassy mm -hmm. and talk to him about going to China. I refused to go to the embassy. Um, I don't know. I, out, out of ideological reasons, or the fact that you might not be able to leave? Or? No, I was I was afraid. Right. And uh, and I know people will think that's ridiculous. Um, but I am not even half famous enough for China to think that I am somehow untouchable. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't go, but instead we met at a hotel. Mm -hmm. We met at a hotel in London and we chatted and this amazingly well-dressed, amazingly well-coiffed man mm -hmm. sat in front of me, uh, almost elegant and slightly regal in his demeanor. <laughs> but his Chinese. Voice, he was Chinese, yes. and he was most certainly Oxbridge educated. Uh -huh. um, his voice and intonation was absolutely that of a, um, a man who's lived in the south of England uh -huh. his entire life. And he said very quietly to me that he thinks that I misunderstand the politics of China. Mm -hmm. He said that one should be careful when traveling to a country saying things that are not true that could get a person in trouble. Wow. And this was chilling to me, mm -hmm. especially as it was he sat with me, but then two gentlemen who I assumed were his escort or guard mm -hmm. stood further away, but still close enough. And it was uh, an, uh, an eerie meeting that made me even more sure that I should go to China and that I should talk about what I saw and there's still uh, my blog that from that period is still up online it's, it's called www.beijinglegacyblog.com um, and I think it, it, the, the information is still up there so people can read about the, the various interactions I had some are very amnesty related some are less so but I think it's it's uh, interesting reading at least once when it comes to cultural differences what is the and and this blog beijinglegacyblog.com when in, what what's the biggest thing that stuck out in your memory or st still sticks out in your memory right now the, the thing that that trip to china reminded me of is that one ha always has to be really careful to differentiate between the people of a country and the government of a country yes and you go to China and you suddenly realize that there are people there who are who fit in every way the description of the word peasant mm -hmm. uh, without any pejorative intent. Sure. Just people who have nothing, mm -hmm. who very clearly, and, and, and again, I don't think in my interactions with them at the direction of their government, I, who very clearly had spent time learning one or two English phrases so they could interact with the athletes, so they could interact with the people coming. Mm -hmm. They did not engage about their lives, yep. nor, nor would they. They felt afraid to. Um, I had a meeting with some. I had a meeting with a, what, somebody who was considered a dissident that we had to cancel, uh, simply because I was followed around everywhere I went. Once I left the Olympic complex, mm -hmm. I had a little escort. That that must feel weird, doesn't it? It is weird, and they're very pleasant. There was even a point where I'd gone sightseeing. Um, uh, I was near uh, Tiananmen mm -hmm. and I couldn't find a taxi or I couldn't get a taxi to stop. Mm -hmm. And after a short period of time standing there looking like an idiot, <laughs> my two covert supposedly guards stopped a taxi for me. Right. Yeah. And it's it's such a, I mean, Beijing is, uh, apart from the smog and the pollution there, it's, it's, a, it's a nice city to be in, nice city to walk around in, to get lost in even as well. 
I think it is. And, and the food is amazing. And I did not meet one person there who was not warm, yeah. effusively so. Yeah. Um, but you, it, it, you, are, you are constantly haunted, whether you're followed by people or not. You're yeah. constantly haunted by what you know of the, of the, of the system there. Yeah. yeah. So b being a foreigner there, that means you stick out. Yeah, well, I stick out everywhere, but you yeah. Stick, <laughs> I, know, I know, I've seen that. Now, you mentioned this word being famous or and, and being half famous. I think a lot of people would know you and uh, just, I mean, put your name in Google and you would rise at the top uh, because you are at least relatively famous. Is there a way that you that you use your celebrity status to influence um, these? Uh, you talked about being uh, invited to, uh, or talking to the Nigerian government, for instance. Do you use your, your say, half celebrity status to, um, uh, how do you say, lessen cultural differences or overcome these kind of things? Uh, I use my influence where I can to try and change people's perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if, if it, if it, if my, my, personal uh, status allows me to change cultural differences in any in any significant way but I, I hope that I can the, the truth is what celebrity does as much as one might have it mm -hmm. is it increases the weight um, of your words it means that when you say stuff instead of these words flying away like feathers in a breeze they land with an authoritative thump that forces people to pay attention. Yes. And, and my, my issue with celebrity sporting and otherwise is that they have these, this power and they use this power to make the families of children who have nothing buy shoes they can't afford. They use this power to get the families of children who can't afford them to buy sugar water mm -hmm. that we are convinced is somehow um, going to make their performance increase. They use this to, in, instead of using it the way it should be used. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, good point. Is there, um, no, just a, a, a two-point question really. What is your pain when it comes to working with different cultures? And what is your joy with working with different cultures? Um, what is my pain? I don't know if there's an actual pain. What do you I, find difficult? I think, um, I don't know if there is a, a, a pain, except for the fact that, I mean, the, my pain with different cultures is not really born of them being different cultures. It's born of the fact that I'm half famous for doing one thing. Mm -hmm. And therefore you have to explain to people that that's not all you are on a regular basis. Right. In a way that is, you know, culturally competent to different groups. Yeah. But that's not to do with their difference. It's simply to do with the fact that when you Google me, you know, a, a very, a very, um, singular line comes up, which is uh, sp your sports that, side, I guess the sports side, that, but it also, uh, most of the stuff that I end up commenting on can make me seem rather humorless and, <laughs> and, uh, stark. And, and I don't consider myself that, um, so it's, that's a translation I have to make for people on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. What's the, what was the, the second part? What's the, uh, oh, the, the one part was the pain, the other, the joy. What do you enjoy most about working with different cultures? Um, the best way I can explain this is by saying I lived in Arizona for many, many years when mm -hmm. I played. Mm -hmm. 
um, just in the summer times mm -hmm. because it was my training base between playing NBA seasons. <clears throat> and I would sit in my uh, hot tub in the in the back garden and my back garden led into the desert behind me, the mm -hmm. Sonoran Desert behind me. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And every night the sun would set behind my, my garden. You would see the saguaro cactus, just like you see in a Western movie. Yeah. And you would hear the coyotes howl and every night the sun would set and every night the, the night, the, the sky was on fire in a slightly different way mm -hmm. until the sun actually set. And then there was no light pollution. So all you could see is stars. And mm -hmm. every night I would do this after training all day, I would sit in my hot tub and I would watch this and it would be a revelation every single time. Time and again. Every single time. Yeah. Every single time you would see some ripple, some nuance, some difference, you would be treated with some new animal that you hadn't seen before scampering by every single time. Mm. And I would bring people to my, my house. Um, every once in a while, I would have you know friends from England would come over and they'd stay as part of their holiday in the summer. Mm -hmm. And they would join me outside. And the first night they would look at this and they'd be like, wow, this is life altering. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. And the next night they'd be like, this is great. Mm -hmm. And then the third night or the fourth night, they'd be like, uh, I don't really have time for this. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, let's go out. Let's do something different. And, and I think the thing that brings me joy, the reason I say this story is because the thing that brings me joy about different cultures is that I treat them like that Arizona sunset. Mm. That, that every night, every interaction with that, with that moment or with that culture is a possibility of something new and amazing as long as I've got my eyes open. And most people, they look at different cultures and they think, wow, I've learned the basics. I know that Sikhs wear bangles. They've got nothing else to offer me. I know that, you know, this religion or that religion believes in this or that. I got the holiday down. It's Yom Kippur. Kippur, I know it all. Yeah. And they, they just, they get a bare bones construction of the culture mm. and they miss the joy of it because they're too interested in the infrastructure. Mm. Makes good sense. Two final questions, um, John, and uh, then we'll call it a day. Can you give us three tips to become more culturally competent? In other words, what do you do or what can you give the audience um, and us as a, as a three tips? Um, yes. You, all right. The first thing is you have to be mindful in your interactions. Okay. It's uh, hopefully people will have an understanding of what mindfulness means, but it's a essentially a proactive attention. It's not just a question of being there in your body, but actually focusing your faculties, your sensory and other faculties, intellectual faculties on the person you're interacting with or on the culture you're interacting with. Yeah. If you do this, you are likely to see more than the infrastructure, the bare bones, and you're more likely to see something that amazes you and transforms you and makes you really understand why the interaction with this culture or person from this culture is valuable. Mm -hmm. okay. most, most people aren't mindful most of the time, so it's not an everyday thing. True. The other two would be this, um, this in combination. I treat the world like it is... Um, like when I encounter somebody, I have benevolent ignorance. I approach somebody and I purposefully clear in my mind the space that says, I don't know anything about you. Are these like taking away stereotypes and stuff like that, assumptions? 
Yeah, uh, yeah, because otherwise that's how we operate. Because our, 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 our human brains operate on the basis of if it's a person like this, then like people like this are treated in this way. Yeah. I simply take away that by saying, I am going to assume for the purposes of this interaction that I know nothing about you. Mm-hmm. But that is not enough on its own. It is coupled with the third part, yeah. which is, I am going to make it clear to you that I would like to know everything you're willing to tell me. Mm-hmm. So this benevolent ignorance coupled with this enthusiastic inquisitiveness Mm -hmm. that combination and being mindful is how you both get the most out of uh, cultural interactions how you have less the least chance of of accidental insult and the most chance of being seen as someone who appreciates difference do you say such a thing as well when you meet somebody new from a new culture a culture that you're not that familiar with I don't, I mean, it doesn't have to be as plain as I don't know anything about you, but you can make it clear to people that you're not buying into the stereotypes. Right. There are plenty of people who, with their face, give away the fact that when they go through the security line at an airport, if there's somebody wearing hijab, they're uncomfortable. Yeah. It's it's some um, it's a question I get quite often from uh, from people that I, I work with or, or workshops that I give. Like, what do I do? What do I do now? And I don't I don't know what to do. And usually I, I advise them ask or ask them to explain what they're doing because it shows an interest in in what the other party is doing. And I've, I've I do this myself, and I've never found anybody taking objection to that. So it's it's somewhat along the lines that you're saying. Yes. Yeah. But you tend to uh, you put it more elegant. So I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow this one if uh, if I may. You're more than welcome. Thank you, John. How can people get in touch with you if they uh, should they like to? They can get in touch either on Twitter. I'm fairly responsive on there at John Amici, or they can get in touch by my website, which is just AmiciPerformance.com, and uh, I will happily reply. All right, perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time, uh, probably out of your busy schedule from Man- Manchester. You're currently right, Manchester. Yep, home. Right. Okay, perfect. Thanks, and I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. I look forward to it. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks, John, for the interview again, and also for sharing the um, three tips at the end, as uh, in terms of being mindful towards other cultures, showing some benevolent, benevolent ignorance, together combined with an "I would like to get to know you" attitude. If you like the Culture Matters podcast, you could really do me a favor, uh, and that is by going to iTunes and give me a rating and a review. And if you do that, and if more people do that, then the uh, the ratings, or actually the visibility of this podcast will go up, and more people will be able to listen to the podcast. I'll be back in two weeks' time. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.